0: Listener Production. Johnny Pollard is the founder of the One Giant Mind meditation app. He's also the personal development and wisdom teacher for some of the world's biggest entrepreneurs, CEOs, celebrities and political leaders from around the world. Johnny has dedicated his life to sharing ancient knowledge gained from some of the greatest living masters of our time. He specialises in teaching the art of embodying our true nature to live the most meaningful life possible. Johnny says, Within each of us is an untapped power to create the change we desire in our lives by allowing all of us to break through our toxic beliefs and conditioning. What follows is a conversation about finding our life's purpose, tapping into our intuition and living a more authentic life.
1: An enormous wave of peace comes over us when we realise that who we truly are is whole and complete, irrespective of how the world might view us. Our very nature contains within it an experience that informs us of the truth of who we are.
0: I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Johnny Pollard is an acclaimed author. His book, The Golden Sequence, shares knowledge and techniques to help anyone reclaim their power to live a meaningful and fulfilling life. I started by asking Johnny, how did his parents' separation at age seven change him?
1: It had a, an enormous impact in my life. Um, and uh, it was something that cons- consumed me completely, uh, mentally and emotionally. I felt like everything had changed in my, my relationship to my friends, my school, the environment, the house I lived in, everything changed. And it was quite a, a huge endeavor to, to reconcile and find a new uh, north, if you like, a new center. And um, because I was experiencing such an emotional upheaval as a result of this, uh, and I, I, I didn't have the the capacity to ignore it. I couldn't distract myself in a way that would enable it to still be there and for me not to interact with it. And, as a result it it demanded that i I develop a an inward attention and and engage with the with the feelings that I was having and particularly at night uh, before I was going to sleep, I learnt through that process to become intimately acquainted with my feelings and to ride the really big waves of emotion that was otherwise. Very unsettling and disturbing it it made it difficult for me to feel okay wherever I was. and I learnt in these sort of free sleep bedtime sessions mm. to become acquainted with the with the rough seas of my emotions and learn to ride these high seas and 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 almost steer myself into calm waters and I would eventually fall asleep. And
0: How do you think you knew how to do that from age seven?
1: I think we all intuitively have the capacity to do that. Mm. The mystery is how is it that I defied the propensity to ignore what I was feeling? Because that's what we are experiencing collectively is a a propensity to ignore our feelings, to shut them down in order to survive. That's normally what happens, yeah. uh, but in my case, I I wasn't capable of shutting it down. I wasn't capable of pretending that it wasn't happening, that what I was feeling wasn't happening. And I think it's because what I was feeling was in stark contrast to the first seven years of my life, which was, you know, filled with great joy and um, creativity and freedom in my in my inner world and all of a sudden that was gone. And because I, I, I knew that intimately, I couldn't compromise the experience. I wasn't willing to settle for what I was experiencing. I intuitively knew it was something that I could work through somehow.
0: And then after that, you obviously you're at school and you had a deep fascination with religious studies, but you're an Anglican attending a Catholic school, mm. which obviously caused some issues.
1: Yeah, well, one of the one of the um, the experiences that I had with my parents separating was this feeling of being displaced, mm. being split, um, and that kind of carried on as a theme in my life right up until you know my late teens. Actually, I I always didn't quite feel like I fitted in wherever I was, and going to a Catholic school as a, an Anglican, Anglican um, only exacerbated that. We were kind of. Uh, excluded from, you know, all of the, you know, the main religious ceremonies and things. And I very earnestly and enthusiastically uh, engaged myself in the teachings of Jesus. Like, Mm. you know, when uh, they were talking about this man that lived 2000 years ago that, you know, despite what everyone else thought of people, he had the ability to, to love and care for people. I was like, wow, like that's that's what's really important. It was intuitively to me something that was really, really important. And when his life was described to me, I really identified with it. Not in any kind of sort of, in any religious context where you kind of adopt a doctrine and kind mm. of go along with it, like I actually extracted just the practical aspects of the teachings of Jesus, like how to live. Yes. You know, be kind, um, be caring, lead with love, be forgiving of those that kind of, Beautiful. you know, all of these simple things that is how I felt like I wanted to be. And yet, I was experiencing such a contrast in that mm. with the way in which it was taught. The teachers, the nuns, you know, they were pretty fierce. They were pretty mean. They weren't very compassionate. They were very insensitive. You know, ostracizing us from from it from it all. And I started to question. Them. I'm like, but hang on. Uh, Jesus wouldn't do that. He, yeah. he hung with the lepers. He hung, I'm just an Anglican. Yeah, <laughs> and you know why can't you include me? And uh, so yeah, that, that that really stirred a lot of a lot of issues in me. <laughs> in,
0: um in your book, The Golden Sequence, which is a fabulous book, you actually write the only way I could feel okay myself was to reject those people in return. Over time, through my rejection, I discovered a kind of power and the freedom to be myself.
1: Yeah, the emphasis on the word kind of. It's not a true power. Mm. Um, I was defining myself based on what I didn't want to be and who I didn't want to hang out with.
0: It's so natural. Yeah.
1: It's a defense mechanism. It's a survival mode. I, w- mm. I went into survival mode. The only way that I could survive in an environment that I so dearly wanted to belong with, belong to, that was rejecting me, was to reject them back. And I, f- I see that as the common pattern in pretty much every area on planet earth that's in yes. conflict. You know, conflict is generated by one or another not embracing and and uh, working with, you know, the, where there is rejection, the only way that we can reconcile it if someone is absolutely, you know, closed down mm. is to either, you know, learn to love them and their ignorant state or reject and... It requires an enormous amount of character to to love somebody that's rejecting you, that's, that's hating you for something that you have no control over or disliking you or dismissing you or devaluing your presence mm. or making you feel less than because of something, you know, the color of your skin or the religion you were born into or, you know, the ideology that your parents adopt or what, whatever it is. And it hurts us deeply because innately we're belonging creatures. In order for us to thrive, we need to feel like we belong to each other. And if we don't feel like we belong, we feel threatened. And when we feel threatened, what's the first thing we do? We go into defense. Yeah. And when we defend, we shut down that aspect of ourselves that gives us the clear signal of who we are. When, we def- when we're in a state of defensiveness, we, we become disconnected with who and what we are, which is creative, loving, intelligent beings that, you know, longs for connection and the the beautiful creative exchange that informs us of who we are as people. We only know each other through our belonging, truly know each other through our belonging with each other.
0: So how did you move forward from that?
1: I was pretty angry. Mm. And when I say angry, I wasn't like, you know, going around picking fights and things, but I had a, I had a a very rebellious kind of arrogant, um, perspective of reality and uh, that's how I survived. And, um, at a certain point, because I continued practicing self-reflection and, Um, remaining intimately acquainted with my feelings because you know, moving through my teens, I experienced all different kinds of anxiety, as you do,
0: which is so common. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I was always engaging in that, those feelings. I I maintained the practice of remaining connected with myself, but it was compartmentalized. There were, I was excluding certain things, and I think you know, through my mid teens, I, I became so um capable of managing my own emotions, that the 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 compartmentalization of my feelings that was excluding the sense and awareness of others um started to deteriorate because that's what happens. Because our our feelings don't end with ourself. To truly feel ourselves whole we have to consider the needs and feelings of others, mm. and this is this is this was the big revelation. Yes. The curtains p- kind of pulled back in the process of me looking after myself. What occurred is the, the the walls that I'd built around myself just started to shake and then eventually crumble, and shards of light came in and it illuminated the pain that I was carrying. And so, you know, by the time I was like seventeen, um, all kinds of things were happening internally where the space that I was occupying internally was rapidly wanting to expand and almost at a rate that I was not capable of managing, it felt, uh, by myself.
0: And then you took quite a different path. You became a professional inline skater and you had a lead role in Heartbreak High, which was a huge Australian TV hit. But you still felt a dissatisfaction within your life and there was still that feeling of not belonging.
1: Yeah. Well, I was skating and acting and doing all of that stuff Mm. while this stuff was happening. So, um, yeah, I was kind of hiding behind all of that stuff and yeah, at a certain point, I just found it very difficult to sustain participating in the world in the same way as I was with all of this happening and, um, at some point I I made the choice to kind of step back for a moment and withdraw from participating in the way that I was to to understand who I was on a much deeper level, which then took me to India.
0: And so what happened when you were in India?
1: Um, The confrontation of a lot of the pain Mm. um, and anger about, you know, what I felt was unfair and unjust. I, I assumed responsibility for it. Um what did you do in india that made you realize that
0: I sat quietly mm. did you did, go to like a retreat I was or? in an ashram yeah,
1: yeah yeah and um uh under the under the guidance of you know a great teacher and l- lots of ancient knowledge yes. that was shared with me and um but it was delivered in very succinct ways that assisted me to immediately gain perspective on what was happening Inside, and ultimately, you know, the revelation, as I state in my book, was that I I was trying to define myself by what I didn't want to be, rather than who I actually was. And that's quite
0: w- profound. Well, yeah, it was. <laughs> and I think unless, like, when you unpack that, not a lot of people would even realize that they were doing that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't realize until mm. you know. So it was it was it was extraordinarily profound, and. The, the, the way that I was able to have that experience is because I was meditating every day and I was starting to experience a deeper dimension of myself and, yeah. and started to go, oh, okay, this is who I am. And then it became clear that I was defining myself based on who I didn't want to be.
0: Yeah.
1: And and so I, I swapped it out. It was a, just a subtle shift in my perspective. that What were
0: the key things that you said, this is who I want to be?
1: It was less conceptual. I mean, if I was to define it, yeah, um, and I, I actually tattooed it on my wrist. It says "Love all, serve all," oh, and I wanted to be—I be, wanted to be somebody that was capable of loving everybody mm. unconditionally, accepting them for where they're at, meeting them where they're at, understanding where they're at, and being of some kind of service to them for them to experience what I was experiencing, which was a sense of wholeness, a sense of completeness, a sense of everything's okay. So I I kind of define myself with that really simple doctrine, put it on my wrist so I wouldn't forget it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, I've been on the wonderful journey of really understanding what it means to live that.
0: And obviously you've written this amazing book, The Golden Sequence, and it talks about the four golden insights. Mm -hmm. The first being life is sacred Can you take us through that?
1: Yeah. Um, The four golden insights are the sort of the precursor that sets you up to practice the golden sequence, which is a technique that brings us out of defensiveness and back into the wisdom of love, which is our innate intelligence uh, that guides us to live the most fulfilling and happy life. Um, When we can transcend defensiveness uh, and move into a creative responsiveness to the, to the challenges and demands that are presented to us. What we notice is that we feel this sense of momentum building in our lives and meaning and purpose becoming very apparent to us. And the outcome is feeling more happy, more fulfilled, mm. more content with the moment and less uh, desperate needing to try and control outcomes to, to give us a, a safe future.
0: How do you define innate intelligence?
1: Our spontaneous instinct to respond in a way that serves symbiosis. Symbiosis is being in mutually beneficial relationship. Yeah. Um, And so the intelligence of nature Mm -hmm. is constantly serving symbiosis. It's constantly serving itself to ensure, and when I say itself, we're talking about a whole ecosystem. We've got lots of, you know, micro um, ecosystems, but they all operate as one whole thing within the biosphere of the Earth, and then the universe, and you know, yeah. and so on and so forth. There is an intelligence that is inherent in this system that is governed by a primary function, which is to ensure the equal and harmonious distribution of energy and resources to make sure that the whole thing flourishes as a whole. And we are enmeshed in that web of life. We belong to it and therefore we have a responsibility. And ingrained in our humanity as as an innate part of our design is a spontaneous instinct, an intuitive response to life that is governed by this intelligence. It's governed by it. Yeah. Our instinct to, when we see a homeless person on the street, you know, your instinct is to go, oh, you poor person, like, I would love to be able to help you in some way. Now, we might deny our instincts, might ignore and go, well, what can I do about it? It's your problem, you know? Yeah. But it doesn't change the fact that our first and most spontaneous response to seeing somebody else's suffering is compassion. And so, this is a classic example of of what that instinct is, to serve the other. Because when somebody else is suffering, we know that that we, we can't be completely happy. We can't be completely content with this moment knowing that there is somebody sitting just there that is in a deep, abject suffering. We can't.
0: Does everyone have that?
1: Yes. Is everybody aware of it, in tune with it? No. The, there are layers of the depth of conditioning that can distort our nature mm. and... Um, you know the, the the ancient yogic practices of meditation and yoga and all these things mm. are about correcting the distortion, restoring nature, bringing us back into a deeper, truer reality. And um, what we're overcoming is the the distortion of years and years and generations and generations of conditioning that layer up. Um, ways that violate our nature and w- when we become indoctrinated impressed upon by these these conditioned responses to life it can cause us to ignore or become uh, desensitized to our nature so you ask the question life is sacred what what is <laughs> what is that the the four golden insights are the four basic precepts that serve as pillars to bring us back into the truth of of who we are. And when we remove all fear and defensiveness and we're able to surrender our attention into this moment uninhibited by the, the worry of the future or the regret of the past and we are able to just be here eventually, generally in a very short period of time, the revelation of the magnificence of our existence dawns upon us. And in that revelation, what we realize is that our capacity to know the magnificence of life is something that is sacred and foundational to our humanity. It is the foundational um, tenant that that informs us of the way to be in relationship with life. When when we know that life is magnificent and it's uh, precious then we treat it as something that is sacred and we nurture it, our relationship to it. We nurture that. And so when we realize that life is sacred, we observe our spontaneous instinct to the sacredness of life, which is that our instinct is to love it. And I define love as the instinct to nurture greater connection, growth, and belonging to life. And so that's the second insight. The first insight is life is sacred. The second is love is our nature.
0: With the first insight, love is our nature. You talk about a higher purpose, and you speak about you. In your book, you say it can be described as the powerful feeling that life is meant for more than just surviving. It is a sense of responsibility that our lives be as meaningful as possible and of the greatest benefit to the world. Mm. What do you think it is that you know is that light bulb moment?
1: I think people have that light bulb moment all the time. And it comes on and they go, and then they forget. Or something happens that threatens them and they switch back into survival mode. I think that humanity remembers and forgets all the time. And that's why it's so in conflict with itself (laughs) because it thinks that it's a fraud. How can I love so deeply in one moment and know the sacredness of life and then in the next moment feel such a, a, a disdain? for someone or something or for life. And it's that inability to reconcile the, the complexity of our, our emotions and our feelings that makes us doubt who we are as, mm. as a species. And it's our self-doubt that creates all the problems. Uh, it, it chips away at our confidence and our sense of power to actualize the truth. We become confused. Do I, do I invest in loving and caring and serving, or do I need to defend myself and protect myself and get what I need because you're gonna go and do what you're gonna do with no consideration of me? You know, what how do I how do I reconcile this? And we can oscillate between these two, yeah. you know, 15 times in a day, 20 times in a day, depending on the environment that we that we live in. And as a result of living in this way, we become very confused about who we are and and, and, and how we can live to maximize our fulfillment. And what I propose in the book is that fulfillment is the stabilized experience of being connected to the sacredness of life, knowing that our deepest nature is love, and that when we're expressive of that love, we have an immense power to influence everybody around us to get onto the love program mm. and interact with us with the, uh, the, the, the most refined level of intelligence to ensure that everybody in the vicinity <laughs> is experiencing something that is progressing their story in the direction of greater happiness and fulfillment. And as a result of that, it causes a sense of belonging. And it's in our belongingness that we feel most fulfilled. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's that's what the four golden insights are all about.
0: And just deep diving into some of them, you, in the second one, um, love is our nature, you say that we are more of a what than a who. Hmm. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah. We identify ourselves conceptually based on trends of culture, you know, I am a successful meditation teacher. Mm. I am a son that makes my mother proud. And relative to that person over there, I have greater status. We are defining ourselves by what we appear to be or what we have what we have, what we have acquired. Our, our who is defined by those kind of surface level sort of markers. Yeah. But when we when we turn our attention inward and we we learn how to quieten the mind and let go of our desperate attachment to needing to be a particular something to fit into the outside world, what we realize is is an enormous wave of peace comes over us when we realize that who we truly are is whole and complete, irrespective of how the world might view us. Our very nature contains within it an experience that informs us of the truth of who we are. And in that experience, we realize that our whoness, who we are in the world, is defined more by what we are as a state of being. And that's essentially what I mean. We are more of a a, a what. What we are is awareness of our responsibility to belong. Like when you break it down at the the most essential level, the the thing that defines us most as human beings is this impulse, this propensity to want to care for and nurture the connection that we have to ourselves, life, each other, and, and we're defined through that. And if we are able to find the courage to act on that impulse, then our identity becomes informed by that. That, that's how we're defined.
0: Your third golden insight is the wisdom. Wisdom is our power, mm-hmm. our intuitive sense, our innate knowing.
1: Mm-hmm. We are knowing beings. Our intuition is like a beautiful silk that, you know, you can lay over your hand and you can feel its softness. It's hardly making an impression, but it's there and it's pleasant and it's welcome. And then we have this thing called logic <laughs> that we lay over the top of it that is like a coarse Hessian. Now, the weight of the Hessian is greater than the weight of the silk Mm. and the the texture of the Hessian is is more coarse. And so it dominates the sensory experience. The logic dominates the sensory experience, overriding or distorting the subtlety of the silk that lays between the layers. And so we have this intuition that is like silk, it's subtle. And it requires a certain level of quietness and a willingness to connect to it. The, the logic is more of a yeah. sort of thing that's. It's, it's compartmentalized. Intuition is more fluid, silky, flowing. And because of the intensity of our world and the level of stimulation that we're exposed to, we get um, hyperstimulated. And in our hyperstimulation, our capacity to be still enough to detect the subtlety of intuition becomes impeded. And so we have to cultivate sensory acuity in order to detect our intuition. When, When intuition becomes the dominant force of your life, what actually becomes more obscure or like... Amazing is the fact that we have the capacity to ignore our intuition. Mm. The fact that we can operate in disconnection to it and exist that way. Like it astounds me that people are existing so grossly disconnected from their intuition and seem to be getting by each day. Not necessarily very happily. Yeah. But they're getting by. It's like, wow, it's that's more of a mysterious thing to me than than living with the magnificence of our intuition.
0: The fourth golden insight is fulfillment is our purpose. How, how do people know what their purpose is?
1: There is only one purpose really. And it's, it's a kind of grandiose statement that I just made there. But when we, when we look at ourselves from a biological standpoint, we, are governed biologically. Our humanity is governed by, biologically, and when we surrender to our innate design, which is to belong, you know, we've evolved for 1.8 million years in tribal, in a tribal dynamic, and mm-hmm. it's only in the last 12,000 years that we've kind of not done that. And we know that very little's changed biologically in our DNA and our makeup in that 12,000 years. So essentially, we're still the hunters and gatherers that were designed to live in tribes. And that's why, you know, when people ask me, you know, what's what's my purpose?
0: Because a lot of people think, you know, they're yearning to find it and a lot of people feel like when they do, they'll be happy, but they don't quite have it yet.
1: Yeah. And it's because, you know, they've got it back to front. And I, I, I talk about this in the book in quite a lot of detail. When people ask me, what's my purpose? I say, well, what fulfills you? And I go, hmm, why are you asking me that? Thinking that, when they find their purpose, then they'll get fulfilled. Yes. It's like, no, work out what fulfills you and then make that your purpose. Right? So simple. It's so simple. Uh, If you know what fulfills you, then just dedicate your life to that. And what I'm proposing in the book is that we share a, a universal dimension of fulfillment. And that's knowing ourselves and bring that knowingness into a into every every relationship and dynamic that we exist in and serving that underlying belonging that actually brings us the deepest level of fulfillment in the moment it's not outcome orientated it's not acquisition dependent it's just a beautiful continuum a, a transactional uh, continuum that is just about being here in this moment and growing it's not about okay great i've got that for me you know there you go, there's something for you, off you go. It's a a constant stream of exchange of experience with an underlying um, theme of care and support so that we are elevating each other into our higher states that we possibly can be in any given moment.
0: Why do you think it's so hard for a lot of us to be present in the moment?
1: Because our nervous systems are hyper-stimulated. We're just... Completely overstimulated, you know. We're, we're not designed to live the way that we are. Mm. You know, for for the tribe life, if we saw another tribe in a lifetime, that would be a thing that we talk about over the round the fire for for decades, and it'd be passed on for generations. We saw a stranger, right? So, tribal life was really just about the, you know, the 30 to 50 people that were in the tribe, you know, think about the level of stimulation, the the amount of strangers that we meet in a day, the amount of information that we process, you know, there's some staggering figure that, you know, the amount of information that we process in an hour was more than, you know, a generation would in a lifetime or lifetimes. The way that we're living now relative to the way that we've biologically evolved um, just it's a total mismatch it's it's actually there's a there's a name for it biological or uh, sorry evolutionary mismatch uh, or mismatch theory which basically stipulates that a species that has evolved in a particular environment for a for a long period of time when removed and placed into a new environment is going to have a, a, an experience of maladaptation we need to be in the environment that we evol- evolved in if we don't exist in the environment that we evolved in we Maladapt, and we fall into an acute state of dysfunction. Sound like a species <laughs> that we know?
0: <laughs> so what yeah. do we do?
1: We can learn to manage and to deliberately start moving back into the direction of cultivating the things that we need to thrive. So um, this is why I lead you know, with everything that I do Mm. with meditation. You know, I'm I'm most known as a meditation teacher um, because I believe that that is the single most important tool that an individual needs in order to, one, first quell the hyper excitation in the nervous system, settle it down. That's what meditation does. It launders the stimulation, the, the impressions of the stimulation, stress from the system. It launders fatigue. It rejuvenates us. But it also exposes our mind, our awareness, to the deeper truth of who we are. And not just from an intellectual standpoint, we have the direct experience of it. Our nature is revealed to us in the meditative process. Just by turning our attention inward and practicing particular techniques, we become exposed to the truth of who we are. Mm. And then we know it. And once we know it, we're like, oh, okay, am I going to ignore that? Or am I going to do something about it? And if I can remain present in another person's life for a long enough period of time. I can ensure that the lights stay on long enough for them to become self sufficient to continue doing the work themselves. Yeah. And then it's a matter of, you know, making choices to not, you know, work so damn hard, mm. to spend more, to, to prioritize family, to prioritize friends, to prioritize ourselves, our own well being, to um, contributing something to the community that's of value. Think about what, you, what skills and talent you have. How can you make a portion of your time devoted to bettering the community? Little things like this, if everybody did it, our world would transform yeah. like that. The great challenge is getting people on that program, you know.
0: In your book, you explain the golden sequence techniques: surrender, accept, feel, connect and respond.
1: Mm-hmm. What the golden sequence does is it, it complements and supplements as a practice um, for us to um, develop new habits of reorientating ourselves towards the deeper truth of who we are. So when we notice that we're becoming defensive in a moment because Mm. somebody said something or, you know, you smelt the fragrance of somebody's perfume that reminded you of someone you used to be with or date and wasn't such a good experience, you know, we can have these subconscious involuntary spikes of uh, defensiveness when we notice that that's happening, we can apply this sequence to the, to the experience and basically melt that defensiveness and bring ourselves back into the truth. Because most of the time when we move into this fight or flight state, it's completely unwarranted. There's no real threat. And that's the issue is learning how to control the fight or flight response when there isn't actually a real threat. That's just imagined.
0: How has doing this work, learning this work, teaching this work changed your life?
1: It has made me um able to understand the the steadiness and the constant nature of what I'm talking about. It's always there. What I'm referring to, this 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 propensity to want to love is actually always there. And everything that that uh interferes with it, interrupts that signal, is just something that exists on the top of it. And when we are in the habit of deprogramming the the conditioning that interrupts it and giving our attention, exposing our sensory awareness to this deeper reality, then that deeper reality just comes up and acquires it. And what I've learnt is that no matter who you are or how dysfunctional you perceive yourself to be, this knowledge and the application of the techniques that accompany it uh, will absolutely transform your life. There's nobody I haven't been able to teach and for them to have a significant transformation as a result of practicing it.
0: What do you want your legacy to be?
1: If I can just live a, a, a truly happy and fulfilling life and pass it on to my children and have some impact in my community and and friends and family and be known as someone that they could go to to feel supported, I'm I'm terribly happy with that.
0: What inspires you?
1: Um, Courage to face the discomfort of the past, a willingness to step into the unknown, to sit in the unknown. And I see those acts of courage every day with the people that I teach. Uh, When I ask them to do that, I'm so inspired by that.
0: What is a life of greatness to you?
1: Living honestly, truthfully, sincerely with a desire to want to serve the good of all. Um, And that can just be in your local community. It can be just in your family and you are living a life of greatness.
0: Johnny Pollard, thank you for (laughs) such a beautiful chat.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to saragrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatnesses executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg, audio producers Matt Nicolich and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new Listener app now and listen for free. Listener.